Hello, my dear listener, and welcome to Is This It? I'm your host, Donna Grinberga, and I'm here to have meaningful conversations with talented and purpose-driven people to discover what mindset allowed them to overcome their greatest challenges and achieve success, and share it with you so you can do the same. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider joining my exclusive Patreon community to support the show and unlock bonus content. Roby is the co-founder of Plant-Based News Channel, digital media expert and vegan activist. Roby uses their skills and passion to direct a global media platform of content that informs, inspires and empowers millions of people worldwide. Ancient peoples from across the planet have reduced or removed all animal products from their diets. If you look at the blue zones across the planet, these are places where people live to over 100, and one of the main reasons they live to over 100 is because of their diet. If we don't need to cause suffering, why would we? Robbie. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me today. <laughs> My pleasure. Where does the passion for the vegan advocacy come from? Well, that will have to go back 12 years. Please. Um, <laughs> when I was experiencing a lot of health problems, I had skin issues, eczema, bloating, tiredness, brain fog. Um, I just wasn't right and I didn't know what was wrong. Uh, and I'd seen many doctors, various different specialists in the NHS and no one could tell me what was wrong with me. So I decided to go on a, a bit of a, a journey of discovery myself. And it was in the early days of Netflix, you know, the digital Netflix, uh, um, the on-demand service in the UK. Um, and I began to watch documentaries like Forks Over Knives, Food Inc., Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead by Joe Cross, um, and learned more and more about the power of food and nutrition for health but also the effects of the food system has on our planet uh, and our environment and, and all the animals that live within it. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, one afternoon that I was recommended a documentary called Earthlings, which is narrated by Joaquin Phoenix, that it really changed my perspective uh, on human relationship, or humanity's relationship with animals. And this documentary, for those who haven't seen it, is a real deep dive into how animals are used in the fashion system, in transport, in food, uh, and entertainment, and how humans have abused, well, we, how we have abused our relationship with animals since the dawn of time, uh, but how modern society has commodified animals and turned them into objects mm. uh, and not sentient beings. And it really shook me because the, 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 the script of the film is so powerful and it's so earth shattering. It really unlocked this realization within me, which is something I always knew. I always knew that I loved animals, that I cared about them. I had pet rats and pet dogs and pet chickens and pet all kinds of animals that I loved on when I grew up in Zimbabwe on the farm. But I didn't have this awareness and this connection that the animals that I loved and the animals that I ate were you know, equally sentient and equally worth uh, of my love and respect. Anyway, so this documentary really opened my eyes. But that very afternoon, I was watching the film and I kind of, you know, turned the TV off and stuff. And a few hours later, I heard this scream from outside the front of our house. And we lived in a cul-de-sac at the time in South London. And I went outside and I saw this people carry all this sort of uh, large car vehicle with a mum and kids in the back, ran over to the car and I said, what's going on? And she pointed back and she said, the cat, the cat, the kids were screaming and crying. Turned out she had hit the neighbor's cat, this big, beautiful white Persian cat who used to live next door, used to hang out in our garden. So, you know, had a connection with her. Uh, or them, I can't remember the gender of the cat, but um, ran over to the cat and the cat was on the tarmac, obviously suffering, a huge pool of ruby red blood. And, you know, as a, as a young person, you were always t taught that if an animal is suffering, we should put them out of their misery. 
that we should take their life, you know, um, through euthanasia. But I couldn't do it. I could not take the life of that animal. And I thought to myself, after watching all these films and, and being made a bit more aware about the effects of the food system, but also our relationship with animals, I thought to myself, if I can't take this animal's life through an act of compassion, then why am I paying other people to kill animals for me mm. on a daily basis? And that was when that realization appeared within me. And from that very day, I committed myself to teaching people about veganism, why it matters, why we need to change our relationship with animals because, you know, they are a part of us. Like we are all from the tree of life. Uh, we share our DNA with almost, well, yeah, with every single living being on this planet. They're in, in many ways our, our distant cousins. And that film and that experience really completely changed me. And I, I guess, committed 12 years ago, I committed to go out and talk about and share and um, discuss this lifestyle with as many people as possible. And that's where the passion began. Wow. <laughs> wow. I had, it's so interesting, but just by listening to this, I, I have a very vivid imagination. So I could put myself kind of in your shoes. Yeah. And even though I haven't seen any of those documentaries, yeah. I can instinctively and intuitively understand what they're yeah. about. Yeah. And I'm having a bit of a... yeah like a lump yeah there were a lot of lumps when I watched that film yeah I can imagine yeah. I can imagine um there's there's so many avenues that I want to go to but I also want to I guess pinpoint that this episode is probably going to be watched by you know your average normal person mm -hmm. which is not vegetarian or vegan yeah. they're an omnivore yeah. and they probably have also heard so many different things about so many different diets yeah. and their head is just a big big mix and match and yeah. they're not sure what's true and what's not which we're gonna go to the to, to the topic of information or disinformation as well later on but going back to the diet itself so i'm gonna use this opportunity to to speak to you and ask you questions that i have myself and probably a lot of the audience has around foods mm -hmm. uh, and nutrition that we come across every day yeah so if i ask you first of all if you're speaking to this regular person mm -hmm. How would you sell, quote unquote, the vegan diet? Mm. Why? Why? Like, why is why would a person go through the trouble of altering whatever they've been doing up yeah. until now and adopt that? Well, we talk about the vegan trifecta when we talk about the vegan philosophy, because let's be clear what veganism is first and de define that. Mm. So veganism is a lifestyle and a philosophy that seeks to exclude the use of animals in food, fashion, transport, and entertainment, and in all ways, practicable. Keyword there is practicable, so to do it within the realms of possibility, within the confines of your life. And veganism was created uh, in the 1940s by Donald Watson, who created the Vegan Society, and he was part of a community of people that were trying to educate and bring awareness to the suffering of animals, but it was originally called vegetarianism. Mm. And the word vegan comes from the word vegetarian, but with a few letters removed from the center, and that is where you get the word vegan. Okay. So vegan is a lifestyle that removes eggs and dairy and other animal products and focuses only on consuming plants. And so this is where this idea, this modern idea of veganism began. But, but let's be, be clear though, this isn't a new concept ancient peoples from across the planet have reduced or removed all animal products from their diets. If you look at the blue zones across the planet, these are 
places where people live to over 100 and one of the main reasons they live to over 100 is because of their diet. They eat little to no animal products at all. So going back to the vegan trifecta, the first part of the trifecta is animal rights, which is what veganism is built on, the life philosophy, that if we don't need to cause suffering, why would we? as humans, as compassionate, kind people, if we can live and thrive without causing suffering, why wouldn't we? And it's clear, thanks to the British and American Dietetic Association, that a well-planned vegan diet is suitable for people of all ages. So the science is there that suggests it is possible, no matter what the meat industry will tell you and what the Daily Mail will tell you, and we'll go into that, scientifically, a plant-based diet is absolutely appropriate for people of all ages. There is a certain amount of nutritional awareness I think is important, but that's important for people of all, of all types of diets. Then there is the second part of the trifecta is the environmental consequences. When we buy into an animal agricultural industry, which is now mostly factory farmed, some 90% of all meat consumed in the UK and in the US and most parts of the Western world are factory farmed. These are huge farms with thousands of animals packed into tiny spaces that use huge amounts of resources, water, producing huge amounts of methane, um, carbon uh, dioxide, and of course, nitrous oxide. And these are huge greenhouse gas, hugely powerful greenhouse gases that go up into our upper atmosphere and they act like a greenhouse, warming our tiny planet and of course melting the ice caps, rising sea levels and completely changing our planet's weather systems on a global scale. Of course the whole planet is warming, we're about to hit 1.2 degrees uh, in warming globally. This is not a good thing for our planet and what we're eating is playing a major role in that. So the environmental aspects of choosing to eat animal products is playing a major factor in that. But you know, the Joseph Poor study in, by Ox Oxford University showed that if you switch to a plant-based diet, you can reduce your greenhouse gas emissions and your climate footprint by up to 78%. Mm. So there's a huge case for reducing our, our emissions by switching to a plant-based diet. Um, and then finally, there's the health side of things, the third part of the trifecta. Most of the leading killers of human beings today, like heart disease, are caused by diet. They're caused by people consuming too many animal products. Food is incredibly high in saturated fats, animal proteins, and of course all the other parts of you know animal product diets such as PCBs, heavy metals. Mm. There's a lot of pollutants in our food now because of the way we farm, these massive industrialized farming. So those are the three elements. There's the ethics of the why should we cause suffering if we don't need to. The second, which is, you know, it's scientifically proven that a plant-based diet can dramatically improve your health, especially in disease reversal like heart disease and type 2 diabetes. And then thirdly, there's obviously, sorry, secondly, there's the, the environmental, thirdly was the health. So there's these three kind of pillars is what we talk about, which are one of the major reasons why. So there is a compelling case to eat a plant-based diet or at least eat more plants yeah. and less animal products. I'm certainly not here shouting and saying, we all have to be vegan tomorrow. It's not practical for a lot of people. They're just trying to survive. Um, they're just trying to get by and, and if people it's expensive, have, it can, often. Well, that's also a bit of a myth. You know, the idea that a plant-based diet is expensive is if you're eat, living on processed food. So if you're living on the burgers and the fries and the chicken nuggets and all these pre-packed foods, they're incredibly expensive. Pork bacon, which is, you know, animal-based pork bacon is about six pounds, British pounds per kilogram, whereas vegan bacon is 29 British pounds per kilogram. Mm. 
but it's not a level playing field because obviously animal products are heavily subsidized by the government, which brings the price right down, which makes it more affordable and accessible. A diet of whole foods, so nuts, seeds, legumes, um, pulses, fruits, vegetables, is actually can be quite a cheap diet to live on. You know, rice, beans, all these types of things, and tofus. You know, you can get all the nutrients you need in your diet from eating whole foods. It's when you start to add your Beyond Burgers and your vegan yogurts and your vegan cheeses and all of these, this is when the price goes up or your vegan bacon, you know, goes up. I'm so glad that you went there because this was one of the points I wanted to address. When I think about vegan food, it's, well, there's my opinion what it should be, but then there's also what I see what mm. it is oftentimes. Mm. And there's so much of these ultra processed, unhealthy vegan yeah. foods that are the substitutes of the previously animal based mm. products. And yeah. these are the plant-based versions of them. So they have, you know, a huge amount of additives, flavorings, you know, yeah. whatever it is that they have. And so it's definitely not a healthy diet. I feel like a lot of people can fall into the trap if they don't do the research and yeah. they don't do thorough evaluation. Right. They want to do good. And so they're like, okay, let me try and be vegan. But then they buy all these ultra processed foods, which are well, a expensive, mm. but also really not good for you. So how much of, I suppose, information or education is out there uh, for people that are tra transitioning or, or trying to steer into the vegan diet that it ideally should be whole foods, mm. legumes, vegetables, right. nuts. We should all be much. eating more whole foods, whether you're an omnivore or a vegan. Yes. But the, the, the important message here is that a vegan diet isn't intrinsically healthy. Veganism is a lifestyle and a philosophy that, that seeks to exclude the use of animals. That doesn't even mention health. Mm. And actually veganism is nothing to do with health. Veganism as a philosophy is a, is a, is a movement to remove the unnecessary suffering of animals at the hands of human beings. So health is another level, which is a personal choice or based on privilege, what you can afford, etc. So you know, not everyone can afford to be healthy in a world overloaded with processed food. There are parts of the United States, for example, and some parts of Britain where people don't have access to healthy fruits and vegetables. There's a lot of corner shops where everything is in a box or it's exactly. frozen. But the, the conversation around ultra-processed food is really fascinating because it's very nuanced and ultra-processed doesn't mean unhealthy actually. Ultra process just simply means it's been through a lot of processes in a factory or in a, some kind of facility uh, and it's in a state where it tends to last quite a long time and it's got a lot of different ingredients that are made up by human beings. What we need to be looking out for in ultra processed food are high levels of salt, refined sugars and, and clarified oils that obviously trans fats and saturated fats. These are the things we need to be looking for that make food unhealthy. So what about all the other things that we have even no idea what they are with the very strange names? Well, so there again, so that conversation is usually centered around, I don't want to eat that because it's full of chemicals. Mm. And, the, and the irony is, is that everything is made of chemicals. Our bodies are made of thousands of different chemicals. There's a piece of technology that allows you to put any organic um, object through it and you can see all the ingredients of that organism or that object actually even if it's a stone or a plant or a potato our human bodies are made up of thousands and thousands of different chemicals uh, a completely natural peach will be will consist of thousands of chemicals and and uh, molecules you won't be able be able to even pr pronounce so there's this rhetoric that if something contains ingredients that you cannot pronounce you shouldn't eat it which is, it's a false dichotomy because ultimately 
you want to understand what those ingredients are because you can have a plant-based burger, for example, which might have methylcellulose in it. And methylcellulose sounds a bit scary, but all it is is plant fiber. But the meat industry will, will, they will play the idea that methylcellulose is a chemical laxative and they will kind of mislead people into believing that we shouldn't eat burgers because they contain chemical laxatives. But the word methylcellulose just means plant fiber. And what happens if you have too much fiber? Yeah, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> You'd need to eat like 50 you know, Beyond Burgers to, to get that effect. So the conversation around ultra-processed food is so fascinating because there's nuance to that conversation. Mm. If you compare, compare a a chocolate cupcake with a Beyond Burger, both as according to the Nova categories. So Nova categories is a is a kind of platform designed to categorize processed foods. Really interesting looking it up, but it's a bit like BMI. Mm-hmm. If you have a an obese person standing on a scale, their BMI will be incredibly high. And if you have an athlete standing on the scale, their BMI will be incredibly high as well. Mm-hmm. And through the context of BMI it suggests that most people are unhealthy because based on their height and their weight ratio, they are in a morbidly obese kind of state. But the athlete is clearly not more morbidly obese. Yeah. So in the Nova scale, you can take a Beyond Burger and you can take a chocolate cupcake and they both are um, scored four, which is considered a highly processed. Mm-hmm. But a Beyond Burger is high in fiber. It is low in saturated fat. It doesn't contain hormones or um, any kind of toxic substances that might be dangerous to the human body. It is made of fully plant-based ingredients, but the Nova categorization, which is made by the food industry, classes it as a four, which is considered highly processed. Mm. So when we look at foods and we look at the ingredients, it's important to have a, an awareness and understanding of all the constituent parts of our food and look out for the things that are actually damaging and are you know, dangerous in high quantities. You know, animal products can contain PCBs, which are pollutants from the environment, heavy metals, hormones, antibiotics, parasites, viruses, you know, bacterium. There's all these things that come Aren't with on it. Aren't subject to not all, but a part, at least a part of the same mm. pollutants, potentially? They can be, depending on how they're prepared. So, for example, you can get food poisoning from salad, but often or mushrooms, because they're grown in the manure, you know, the feces of, of animals. Mm. And so all those bacterium that are from the, the guts of cows or pigs or chickens end up in the soil and then the fruits and vegetables are grown in this manure-rich soil and that can sometimes come with the fruits and vegetables to the supermarket. If you don't wash your salad properly, you could end up with quite severe food poisoning and it happens. Um, it less, hap- less happens these days with modern uh, sanitization technologies with like UV light and things, but um, it is possible to still get uh, some kind of infection from vegetables, yes. <laughs> mm. So what about this, um, this not ideology, but this thought um, school that as we have evolved for, you know, millennia, millennia, mm. as hunter-gatherers originally, yeah. when we were always in a movement and we were, you know, eat, hunting meat and yeah. we were gathering, of course, plants and mushrooms and fruits and everything. Mm. Kind of what about that school of thought? Right. That, so, that, that's meant to be natural. Yeah. So, that, so that is what we call the appeal to nature fallacy, mm. which suggests that just because something is natural, that means it's good. Mm. Well, snake poison is natural and it's probably going to kill you. There are lots of things in nature that are highly toxic mm. <laughs> that will kill us. So this idea that we must do something because it's natural is not showing the full picture. 
If you look at human society today, our clothes, our transport, our, our um, aeroplanes, our cars, nothing about our society is, in quotes, natural. We have completely turned nature upside down, distorted it, twisted it, and pulled it apart, and bent it to our own will. Mm. And so human society is far from natural. However, the conversation around what we are eating, what we are eating, should be centered around bioavailability. When we consume this food, will we digest it? Will we absorb it? Mm. Will it cause damage to our arteries? Will it cause um, obesity because it, you know, it's high? Like take chocolate bars for example. They're not great for us. They taste amazing, but they're not great for us because they're a tiny little package, very high calorie, very low cessation. You know, when we eat it, we're, we're not full. It's, it's, it's an, it seems like quite an unnatural food, but it brings a lot of pleasure when we eat it. So biologically, and from an evolutionary perspective, when we eat foods like a chocolate bar, which are incredibly high in sugar and fat, our brain lights up like a Christmas tree, and it triggers that evolutionary kind of imperative to gorge on that type of high calorie food. So we eat more and more and more. It's a small package. It's not filling us up. We eat a lot. We gain weight, which obviously leads to health issues. It's a very fascinating subject uh, about our relationship with food and our emotional relationship with food. But we're also, as people, just trying to survive and live. And the messages we get about our food often come from the TV, from uh, from the government, from the... Interest. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these can be wrapped up in agendas that are trying to maintain the status quo. And the meat industry, the dairy industry, the egg industry, etc., they're incredibly powerful, wealthy organizations that are making huge amounts of money from exploiting animals and getting people to continue to eat vast amounts of animal products. You know, going back to the question about what is natural, well, factory farming is definitely not natural. Piling thousands and thousands of animals into tiny little spaces, pumping them with hormones and antibiotics, and antibiotics, interestingly, and we can talk about pandemic risk, but antibiotics, antibiotics are given to animals because it actually increases their growth, but it's given under the guise of disease reversal. So these animals live in such disgusting conditions. The farmers give them antibiotics to fight all the pathogens and bacterium that are growing in these really concentrated environments. You know, there's no social distancing in factory farms. Mm. So they give them antibiotics saying, oh, we're protecting animals from disease, but actually antibiotics given in large quantities accelerate growth. I don't know the biology behind why, but they accelerate growth. So chickens and pigs are given huge amounts of antibiotics. Some 60% of antibiotics in this country go to farmed animals, all antibiotics. And we can go into details as to why that's bad. <laughs> Yeah, that, no, that's very bad because we end up eating that. And so we become antibiotic resistant. So we become resistant to all the viruses that we're supposed to be able to kill with yeah. antibiotics when we become sick. So the yes. antibiotics, we don't really consume the antibiotics because they do end up coming out of the animal system. But what is the danger is that those animals are living in that concentrated environment. The bugs that are living with them become resistant to the antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And so the antibiotics that are out there in the world become ineffective to the bacterium. And so you will go to the supermarket, you'll buy some chicken or some pork, you'll cut it, you'll open it, you'll be cutting it and you might cut your finger and then some antibiotic resistant bacteria will go into your skin, into your blood and can affect you. This is where we get MRSA, microbial resistant bacterium into your blood. And then you'll go to a hospital and you could die from that because that bacterium, which has been living with the pigs for you know, decades has become resistant to antibiotics. And so the issue isn't us consuming the antibiotics, mm. it's the animals and the bugs that are living together in these hideous conditions 
because they're given antibiotics every day, topping them up, topping them up, topping them up, and the, and the bacterium become used to it, and they no longer become effective. It could kill millions of people, this problem, antimicrobial resistance. Um, and it's a bit of a, a silent horror story waiting to happen because factory farming is so prolific, it's so um, successful, you could say, that there are many opportunities for future pandemics kind of waiting for us behind the scenes. Mm. Yeah, this is <laughs> definitely going to put me off of, uh, of me for a very long time. <laughs> I actually had this experience when I was 16 years old. I went to uh, my first yoga camp and that's where I learned the meditation, mm -hmm. the asanas, the mm -hmm. community kind of aspect of things. And one of the things that we did one of the days was yeah. we watched this Meet Your Meat thing yeah. documentary. Yeah. And after that, I didn't, I was a vegetarian for, uh, for six months. And I felt great. I felt great. The only reason why that didn't persist is that in my school, I was, I was in high school mm. uh, at that time. In our buffet, there was very limited amount of, you know, foods, Options, actually food yeah. choices. Yeah. So it was, you know, virtually impossible. Like I could only eat basically salad. That, that was it. Like potato fries and salad. <laughs> That's all I could have, could have been eating there. It's definitely not healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, so, yeah, which kind of ties back into absolutely ludicrous that it's more expensive to eat healthy in many places, especially like in America, mm. than it is to, to be healthy because mm. all, the, all the fast foods are much cheaper than just, I'm not even going to say organic, but definitely if you want organic vegetables mm. and fruits, then yeah. it becomes extremely more expensive than just buying fast food, which is... It's mind-blowing. There's a, I highly recommend a great documentary called A Place at the Table. Mm. Um, and it talks about food security in America. Tens of millions of people in America live with food security problems. I mean, in this country alone, upward of almost 5 million children are living with... What do you with... mean by that? So food security is where you don't know where your next meal is coming from. Oh. So you, you are probably skipping meals. Um, you are you're not getting enough nutrition. It's insane that a, a country of 68 million people, that almost 5 million children are living with food security problems and they can't afford to eat, their families can't afford to eat, their parents are going without dinners and lunches, you know, or even going for entire days without eating. And that's happening now in Britain because of food security issues. We, when we look at how much food is being produced, it is, to me, criminal. Of all the food that's produced in our country, 30% of it goes in, in the bin because it doesn't look right. It's not the right shape or it's not the right size or it's slightly damaged. Then the food that is picked goes to the supermarket and then it gets put on the shelf. 30% of that goes in the bin because it's been damaged in transit. And then the food that the customer buys that goes home, about 30% of that gets ended up ends up in the bin because people are wasting it. They're buying too much. There is so much food waste, it blows my mind, but yet there are so many people starving and suffering. But the irony is, is that most of the food that we grow, we feed to animals, so that we can feed, that we can eat the animals. If we feed a cow 20 calories, we get two calories back mm. in nutrition. So it is an incredibly ineffective way to get our nutrition. Sure, it tastes great. Sure, people love meat. I mean, we'll talk about cellular agriculture, hopefully, as well mm. as a solution. but. You know, we have enough food. There is enough nutrition to feed, you know, the 8 billion people and 10, 20 billion people. But all the land that we have on planet Earth that is agricultural, 80% of it is to farm animals, mm. as you know, including the food we grow to feed them. So, you know, the system, even though 
everyone wants to eat their meat is incredibly inefficient, highly damaging to our environment, and of course, incredibly and intrinsically cruel on an industrial scale. So going back to your original question about like, what's the case of veganism and a plant-based diet? You know, these are very, very strong reasons. But all that being said, you can present all of this to people and they still want to eat their meat because they love their meat. And we have a deep cultural and emotional connection to the consumption of animals. And in my opinion, this is where cellular agriculture comes in, where we can have the meat that we love, but we don't need to kill animals and we don't need to destroy the planet in the meantime. How does that work? And before we actually go yeah, there, yeah. about the food waste, I mean, surely people have had this conversation before and, and they must have said, well, why don't we eliminate those first 30%, yeah. 30, 30% of waste from the grocery shops and just, just give them to people that are in need. What, what? You would think that that would be the obvious thing to do. And there are people fighting for this every single day. But the inaction of our government in this respect is, it's criminal in my, in my opinion. People shouldn't be starving, but it's just the change isn't happening. The farmers who produce all the food and the supermarkets, the relationship between the farmers and the supermarket, the supermarkets want perfection. They want fruits and vegetables to look perfect. Well, why can't farmers then send this to people in need? They do. So the farmers do do farmers markets. And there are um, platforms like Oddbox. Mm, uh, Oddbox sell fruits and veg that are misshapen and things. And But again, these are not mass market. They're quite small fry, really, when you think about it. There's just not enough awareness. There's not enough awareness from people. Personally, I don't care what my fruit and veg looks like. As long as it tastes good. Um, as long as it's not like diseased, I don't yeah, yeah, mind. Yeah. I don't really care. But there is this perception of, you know, per, per, it, it's worse in the US than it is in the UK, I would say. You go to supermarkets in the United States, everything looks so perfect and so like pristine. You know, Sainsbury's and Tesco's in this country, you're quite common, walk, quite, quite common to walk around and see rotten fruit and vegetables. And, yeah. you know, the, the sense of pride is, is very different here than it is in places like the US. But in these chains of production, fruits and vegetables, and also meat as well. I mean, let's talk about like meat. Thousands and thousands and thousands of turkeys that are killed for Christmas end up in a landfill because they don't get sold. Tens of thousands of animals that are killed for nothing end up in the bin. So it doesn't happen just with fruits and vegetables. It happens with meat as well. And one of the side effects of that is greenhouse gas emissions. All that food being dumped into landfills is producing huge amounts of methane. Mm. Methane is a huge uh, greenhouse gas that well, a powerful greenhouse gas it's up to 80 times more effective at keeping the heat in our planet than carbon dioxide and it's it's methane is being produced in huge quantities by the animal agricultural industry of course and all food waste as well um you know our planet is like in many ways a glass orb you know and our atmosphere keeps the you know, the gases the sorry the, the gravity keeps the gases around our little planet it's like an onion skin mm -hmm. And we are just pumping it with more and more of these greenhouse gases. Have you ever been in a greenhouse and it's quite warm in the yeah. summer? It's warm because of the methane. The methane rises up from the soil. It collects around the glass. The sun comes in and then the, the, sorry, the heat comes in from the sun and it can't escape because the methane keeps the heat inside the, the glass. And that's exactly what's happening on planet Earth because of food waste, because of animal agriculture and many other um, industries as well. So obviously permafrost in the North and Southern Hemisphere as well. Ancient forests that were once under the ground, ice is melting and of course permafrost um, cracks in the soil. Huge big caverns of methane deposits. Yeah, I read about that. Are there like climate bombs, you can call them, 
you know, when those things start to crack and open and, you know, the ice in the Northern Hemisphere is, is receding at rates never seen before in, in modern history. When those gases are released in huge quantities, it's, you know, we're in big trouble. Question about this. So obviously I've been observing this um, rising debate over the years yeah. about the, the global warming that we've been having. However, it seems from kind of history lessons that Earth cyclically goes through mm -hmm. these like cold and hot it does, yeah. areas. So how much realistically mm. do you think is what we're doing as a contributing factor versus what might just be a cycle that we're going mm. through as well? 100% us. When you look at the natural cycles along a plot, along a graph of the changes in the, t in the temperatures, it kind of does do this, right? But now in the last century, it's doing this. It's completely off the charts. We're breaking all the planetary boundaries when it comes to a safe environment for us as a species and all the other earthlings that live on this planet with us. Yes, there are these natural cycles caused by the solar cycles of our sun, you know, the star that's at the center of our solar system, um, and the natural changes of our planet as it spins around um, the solar system. But um, yeah, the, the science is clear. It's undeniable that because of human activity from 100 years, we have created this huge acceleration. And what is shocking is that 100 years ago, there were people here in London warning that if we continue to pump these gases, the smog and the smoke and the carbon from our factories into the upper atmosphere, it will have catastrophic effects in the centuries to come. There was an article from a hundred years ago in a newspaper that detailed this. I wrote about it on LinkedIn. It's shocked me when I saw it. I, I couldn't believe that so long ago people have been warning of this and now the effects one century later is starting to come into reality. And any time on social media in this conversation, there are the scientists and the climate scientists and people who are screaming from the rooftop saying, this is happening, we have got to slow down. And then there's obviously naysayers and various other industry lobbyists who are often linked to the oil industry, mm. often linked to animal agriculture, who are saying, it's not happening, we're not affecting the planet. But the data is there. You can look at all the readings from across the planet. The planet globally is warming together. The average temperature is warming 1.2 degrees, 1.3 degrees. If we hit two degrees warming across the entire planet, there will be catastrophic changes to this entire weather. Because people talk, oh, the weather's not changing. Because I think there's a real lack of awareness. It is, it is definitely changing. Yeah, there's a lack of awareness of like the difference between weather and climate. Weather are localized weather events. You know, it rains here, it snows over there. That's localized weather. Climate is across huge, vast waves of land and intercontinental shifts of weather systems. There are huge amounts of like airstreams that move around the earth like a living it is like a living organism like a like a symphony moving in this beautiful kind of um uh, dance you know around the planet and as the seasons change the dance changes and it's happened for tens of thousands of millennia in these ways changed by shifts on the planet humans come along and we produce huge amounts of methane carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide the levels of these gases accelerate and of course produce a warming. The sun hits the upper atmosphere, it melts the ice, because the ice is really important as well. It's a big part of this whole system because the ice, because it's white in color, it reflects light. If the ice disappears, the sun, the heat from the sun hits the ocean, warms the ocean, 
changes the current, so the air changes the whole system. So less ice, more warm water, changes in air streams, changes in air streams, changes in weather. So it's a knock-on effect, it's a cascade effect. Which is then self-perpetuating. Yeah, and it's a, an acceleration down into a massive shift and a complete, we've all seen the day after tomorrow, that film about the catastrophic weather. I mean, that's a pretty extreme example, but you know, we are heading in that direction if we don't change the way we live. And that is everything from the way we travel to the food that we buy, to the type of food that we buy, to this globalized planet where, you know, there's shipping and airplanes and everything is just so hyper interconnected. Mm. Humanity is on a collision course that's undeniable. The question is, is, you know, what kind of mitigation can we put into place as a species? But the problem is, is like, the way I like to imagine it is it's a bus. And humanity is, a, is the bus. The politicians are driving at the front, the public are in the middle, and all the activists and climate campaigners are at the back screaming, slow down, stop the bus, stop the bus. There is a cliff coming. The politicians are just like waving their umbrellas and fists. But and why? This is what I don't understand. We all- Corporate we, we, interest. <laughs> I understand, but like we live here, mm. they live here, their kids live here, Be must, surely. Because there's the mentality that it's gonna happen far enough down the road for it not to be their problem. I'll be long dead, my kids- Or I'll be rich enough to we'll be hide rich. in the bunker. Yeah, there, there's this idea that it's gonna be someone else's problem. But you know, if you've worked in any corporate structure and a big group of people, you realize how disorganized and chaotic human beings really are. This idea that there's all these conspiracy theories behind the scenes, I always laugh at them because humans aren't organized enough. We're a mess. You know, we, our societies are a mess and they're a mess because our leaders take us down all kinds of crazy directions that aren't a benefit to people, planet, and animals. It's all about profit and the power of capitalism, which is about buy more, take more, be more, consume more. And it's never been about, well, capitalism really, has never been about how to give back, how to return to the earth, how to nourish what we have taken. It is consumption, capitalism equals consumption. Of course, it can be conscious, I do believe, capitalism can become more conscious and it is possible mm. with like a circular economy I was just gonna say that, where yeah. we we buy something we use it it breaks we send it back it gets repaired we get it back yeah but our capitalist system now is consume 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 buy 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 have more take more be more but from what you know this this earth is not an infinite resource it is a finite place with finite minerals with finite water with finite resources, we can't keep taking as if there is an unlimited wellspring of everything. Mm. So our entire society has got to change. And if we don't change, nature will force us to change because we live in a bell jar, right? Like, you know, this jar, this, this, this glass orb, I like to call it. We can't get out. Yeah. <laughs> we could, but you need a lot it of money. It seems that the excess is really at the, at the core of the problem. Absolutely. Because... Uh, as you said, yes, the resources are finite, but there's plenty of them. There's there is plenty, plenty enough. Absolutely. And so it, what, what, from what we've spoken about today, it seems that it's rather the byproduce or our waste that is creating the biggest problems yeah. for the planet and for ourselves. Mm. And at the core of that is really this, this excess and just wanting more without the regard of what's happens the next. Consequences. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The consequences. Yeah, exactly. Well, it'll take like... Um, rubbish trash as we say in the us when you throw something away there is no away when you throw something in the bin you just expect someone else to deal with it but landfills around the planet like take 
Thailand, for example, the UK sends megatons of plastic waste to Thailand for Thailand to dig huge holes and dump it in the ground. And you know how much of it ends up in the ocean? Tons and tons and tons of it. I've forgotten the number. <laughs> wow. But, you know, we are wasting so much and then it's somebody else's problem because we just pay somebody else to deal with it. And we don't know whether they're dealing with it properly or effectively and it ends up back in the environment. Personally, I think virgin plastic should be banned. Virgin plastic is plastic made from, you know, fresh plastic. So plastic that hasn't come from mm, recycling. Mm. Yeah, because I think that plastic should become a commodity that has a value and that there should be restrictions on how much plastic is produced per year. Mere virgin plastic. It shouldn't be called planet Earth anymore. It should be called planet plastic. Because we're producing so much that, you know, it's like a tsunami, right? Um, obviously, whenever I have these conversations, it can quite easily spiral into, uh, you know, a, a sense of hopelessness. And, no, you know, it's, but it's real talk. I'd call it, it is, real but it talk. Is, but, there is, but there is hope because we have all the technologies and the knowledge now to deal with all of these problems. We just lack the political will. To make it happen and this is where as individuals we hold the power to push our politicians and the people who run our countries to bring change but we need to get organized we need to act as unified voices and say we want an end to plastic waste we want an end to virgin plastics we have to push for solutions rather than all putting our hands up and saying well i'm just one person what can i do said eight billion people you know that's so true. That's so true. I definitely feel guilty. I'm, I'm one of those people. Since I was a kid, I had this, and probably it comes from your parents and, you know, just this notion that the politicians are corrupt and they do not have our best interests at heart. And what I observed from the little that I was following politics was that, you know, whoever comes on a stage for the term that they have, they yeah. make these huge promises and then they never get delivered. And then it's the next one is just a, just a, just a loop. And yeah. if I pay attention to that, it's just, I'm giving my attention and possibly hope, uh, to these people. And so, yeah, I kind of, um, I can resonate. I can I'm, resonate. With I that. feel exactly the same, Donna. Like I, the political system is deeply flawed and, and highly corrupt in this country. The conservative party have been in power for 13 years, 14 years. Look what they've done to the country. It's on its knees financially, really, you know, whilst, you know, billionaires fly around in their jets, you know, pumping huge amounts of greenhouse, gas greenhouse gases into our atmosphere, laughing and talking about sustainability, you know, while they fly off to cop, whilst they eat their munch on their beef burgers, you know. There's so much hypocrisy, of course, and, and politicians, I'm so tired of politicians talking in circles about change and policy change and doing nothing about it. Uh, and I think it's because there's no consequences, you know, the political systems worldwide. If I was involved in politics and had any clout, I would make it against the law for politics, politicians to mislead the public. There to be, it to be a crime and to be punishable by some kind of huge fine or prison or something like that. Politicians should, if you're found to be misleading the public or using statements that are known to be factually incorrect, uh, I think it should be seen as criminal. Mm. These people work for us, but yet we live in a system where we live in fear of politicians. Like look at the UK with the Public Order Act, which came out after COVID, which bans protest. Crazy. We, know, we live in, we live, we're meant to live in a dem democratic country, but you're not allowed to protest without getting permission from the state. 
I mean, it's obscene. It's, it's like something out of a dystopian film. Yeah. But they, this is how the erosion of liberty happens. It's one law after the next, after the next, and before you know it, we're living in a, you know, handmaiden's tale type country. You know, and it seems scary, but it, it is reality. I mean, look at the, how the shifts across Europe is happening. Amsterdam is, in Amsterdam, the Netherlands has become a quite a hard right country. Italy is an extremely hard right country, as in like the, the policies and the, the, the laws and the politics of it have become much more focused on the right side, which is removing personal civil liberties, which is a war on woke, you know, war on liberalism, mm. you know. I personally don't want to live in a in a culture where people aren't able to be free to be who they choose to be. Um, you know, in those countries, the uh, laws are being rolled. Gay marriage are being wanting to roll back gay marriage. You know, adoption by you know LGBT couples. Um, you know, the war on trans people. There's this culture war on trans people. There is so much weaponization of identity politics, which is all just a smokescreen to distract people from the reality of what's happening to our world mm -hmm. the reality of you know falling economic security of people people are, can't afford to eat or heat their homes but yet politicians are going on and on and on about immigration creating this fear the, the politics of fear is, is all part of this. it's all so powerful create an other create a, a boogeyman a, um, a an enemy for the people and keep them from looking over here about what's really going on, about how we as politicians have our fingers in the pie, taking, siphoning out billions of pounds, which we're paying off to our friends and buddies of this contract and that contract. You know, it's just their huge identity policies and the war on work is just a distraction from what they really are doing or what they're not doing. Yeah. <laughs> what, what they're not doing, you know, we talked about like, can we trust our politicians? Absolutely not. I would see and push for a complete change in our political systems because, you know, like the Conservative government have been in power in this country for 13 years. Say Labour get in, they have four years. How on earth are they able to bring any kind of effective change in four years? Mm. And that's the thing. A lot of countries, political parties have four-year terms. And it's just, you know, kicking the can down the road. You know, you mentioned, why can't we deal with food waste? <laughs> because... It's a, such a huge problem that our politicians just hope for the next party to deal with it or just talk about it in the distant future. So it's never really evolving. It's all about maintaining power and control in a certain way so that they can maintain their power and control and over their tenure as government can siphon off as much money as possible into all their you know, connections and cronyism that goes on. And it, you know, even in countries like the UK, which you would expect to be a place where democracy reigns true and you know, there's, there's honesty and decency. But if you listen to Carol Vorderman, for example, she's a, a British TV personality and she's been doing these deep dive exposés into our government. It's like something out of a, a TV show, <laughs> wow. what they've been up to. And they do everything they can to distract the public from all this stuff that's been going on, all these scandals oh, you know, drag queens are dangerous, or oh, trans people, or oh, immigrants, the boats, the boats, stop the boats. Don't look over here. Yeah. Look at the millions and billions we burnt on PPE that was completely useless, and 14 billion or something that was burnt on PPE for doctors and nurses that never got used. 
You know, can you imagine the good? I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so much being wasted, money being wasted, um, you know, all just for sort of, you know, lining the pockets of their friends and mates. So, Well, this brings me to another point, which is news and the complete unreliability and and lack of trust that we can give mm. the news. Yeah. In fact, if anything, it seems that whatever the news are showing, you should be looking like, okay, what are they hiding right now with right. this story? Who do you trust? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, and this has been happening pretty much since COVID. I had my own kind of revelations, but it seems that whatever whatever huge thing is happening that's getting huge coverage, mm. there is even Something bigger things on. happening course, behind yeah. the scenes that are more of impact that they, <laughs> whatever they are, mm. don't want you to see. So I guess that brings us to to the question of the information or disinformation. I like how you have on your profile. What is it? D disinformation buster. Buster. I love that. <laughs> I love that. So w where are people supposed to be getting their information trust today? People. So there's a really interesting platform called Ground News, which is a news um, aggregator. And what that does is it pulls news from across the political spectrum, left center mm. and right and it pulls them all into there's a, a list. center wow yeah there's centrist <laughs> news yeah it's like the independence yeah. pretty centrist the guardian's kind of lefty um the daily it seems Ma always that there's just the yeah left or right the daily mail's very um the metro is quite centrist mm. centrist is more things that appeal to a broad church uh very neutral less hyperbolic which we need more of yeah uh, and then right-wing media is more extreme. It often taps into the politics of fear, othering minorities, attacking women, attacking trans people, attacking gay people, attacking people of color, demonizing these minority groups. Um, it's very emotive in its language. It often uses very um, hyperbolic language. So it's often like about exposés and this person slammed that person. It's designed to trigger emotion, to get you to feel something, uh, to get you to click, to, to view, to, to sell ads, right? Whereas liberal media can be like that as well, but it tends to be more focused on social justice and identity politics and freedom for all and environmentalism and protecting the planet and protecting animals. And these obviously some of the subjects. Um, and so what Ground News does is it brings in all the headlines from across the political spectrum so that you can view the opinions and views from both sides. Mm. And so if you want to understand what's going on, read news on both sides of the political spectrum. Listen and understand the perspectives of people from all parts of the conversation and then make your mind up based on that. Mm. But also it's important to understand what is a credible source and understand who what are, is a credible source what today? What is a credible source? It's very hard to say. I mean, the reason I trust The Guardian is because it's an independent organization. It doesn't have shareholders. Mm. It's not in control by some billionaire from New York or Bahrain um, who has got interests focused around advertising and selling media. The Guardian is owned by its readers. Mm. The millions of people that read The Guardian, they own, they're co-owners of it. They pay into a fund to support it. Um, and it has some level of integrity. It's not perfect, of course. There are many people who will criticize The Guardian for, for various things. But when it comes to media literacy, it's important to have an awareness of the full story because media will often always leave something out. You know, bias is about telling your side of the story. 
But when you listen to people from across the spectrum, you're hearing the whole story. Well, at least you're hearing more of the story. So you can get a fuller picture. Mm. So it's important never to completely disregard mainstream media news. I've heard a lot of my friends, especially in the sort of spiritual, uh, I don't know what it is, but in the spiritual world, don't read the news. They don't watch the news. They don't, they don't consume any mainstream media news, which I think is really dangerous because, you know, not all of the mainstream media is trying to mislead you. Of course, there are elements in there that are misleading or um, hyperbolic or mis- mis- point blank misinformation. But, it's but that should be criminal in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. But there should be a sense of awareness of what's happening in the world. And obviously you can go and live on a hill somewhere and like completely remove yourself from society and you'll probably be healthier, happier and have less mental health problems. Um, and you know, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big upside. <laughs> you know, but if you live in the Western world and in, in, in the type of culture we live in, having some sense of awareness, especially if you're going to be going onto social media, giving your opinions on geopolitical issues like war or nutrition or um, economics or politics or anything like that. If you're going to f- go out and speak on social media and give your opinions and views on things, make sure you're getting a well-rounded view of everything that's going on in the world and not sitting there espousing your opinions and going, I don't listen to the mainstream media. I don't listen to that because you're getting your opinions and views from somewhere. Exactly. And most of the time it's social media, influencers, etc., who a lot of the time are not experts. And these are people who are espousing views on nutrition, on geopolitical issues, on politics, from opinions and views that are often many times grounded in racism, homophobia, transphobia, uh, xenophobia, you know, all these types of deep-seated otherizations, othering othering of, of minority groups. So... It's a fascinating world, misinformation, disinformation, because there it's a kind of like a, and it's been made worse by social media. Social media creates echo chambers. And do you know a pitcher plant? Yeah. So it gets the fly and the fly goes yep. in and drowns. So social media acts a bit like a pitcher plant. It grabs you, gets you onto a certain subject that you're interested in, and then the algorithms trap you in the pitcher plant where you get fed images and video that reinforce your beliefs your opinions and then you hit the bottom of the pitcher plant and that is the echo chamber and in that echo chamber you have people all around you friends and connections that reinforce those belief systems so you might believe the earth is flat which some people do and you get fed all this content by all the social networks that you are spending time on that te- are telling you and reinforcing this idea that the earth is flat and you hit the bottom and then you start connecting with all these people that go, it's flat, it's flat, I've seen this, I've seen that, don't believe them, don't trust them. And that just Government, reaffirms your beliefs. Governments are trying to kill us, you know, the police are not to be trusted, doctors are evil. And so you spend all this time connecting and, and being associated with a uh, somewhat small group of people that continue to reinforce that bias, that, that, that idea, that worldview. And once you're in there, it's really hard to get people out. And people who are there, they're not looking at a broad view of the, of the media. They're not looking across the spectrum. They are laser focused on their exact view and it becomes religious. People become so stuck on that view. The earth is flat. It's, you're never going to convince me that it's not flat. If you took me up in an airplane and you showed me, I would, the person I'd probably say, you've faked it somehow, you know. AI. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
this is this is very interesting because th that was my question to you i feel like there is a huge and growing part of the society that is purely getting their information from social media yeah. and maybe podcasts and you know as you said i feel like if you don't subscribe to the mainstream media you're probably going to live a, a much happier life yeah. but equally you're right on the point that you should know at least the outlines of yeah. kind of what's happening mm. and then it's a question of okay but how you can actually filter out what's interesting to you because i go to my gym right and there's the new newspapers laid out like mm. every day and i glance and then i stop because they hook me in and so yeah. then i start reading and and it's been half an hour later that i realized that i've read about you know somebody who defrauded the tax man and other things that are completely irrelevant to me but they depressing gave, things yeah well. and they have gave, yeah. given me an uh, an emotional charge mm. they have yeah you know what i mean and so i don't know what's what's kind of the the solution like a practical solution to that because you have to be stay yeah. informed but how do you stay informed without all the trash that you do not need which is 90% being selective about what you consume and how you consume it and creating filters which you can do in the guardian which you can do using apple news you can tell it what you want to see and what you don't want to see uh, and using platforms like ground news which you can customize the ground news platform also has something called the blind spot so what it does is it gives you media that's the opposite to your political views nice so it, it, we all have blind spots and it's trying to encourage us to be more aware of what other people are thinking. That's why I love listening to LBC. It's a radio station in the UK. It's like 5 million listeners or something. Mm. LBC means lead, is short for leading Britain's conversation. Mm. And it's a talk radio show. You'll get addicted to it when you listen to it. And it's people from all over the country calling in about everything political, scientific, nutrition, lifestyle, fashion, mm. you know, injustices. Yeah, it was a show about the 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 um the controversy with the um the postal service. You must have heard about it. No. So for more than twenty years, uh, men and women from around the country who have run little post offices uh, were criminalised by the post office. Uh, some imprisoned. So several people took their own lives, um, and they pleaded innocent all the way through for the last twenty years. Um, and people were desperate to. Uh, proved that they were innocent, but some people were accused of stealing up to 30,000 pounds from the till. Turns out that it was an error in a tax system provided by a company from overseas, and over a thousand people were criminalized, lives ruined, relationships ruined, marriages ruined, and they've been fighting for awareness of this for 20 years. Channel 4 made a, um, a dramatization of this a month ago. It was on TV. And the whole country now knows about it, except you, I'm joking, um, and now knows about it. And you can imagine the whole country is outraged. They are so angry that these people are often centers of the community, little post office where you go and you send your parcels. These people are part of people's lives for, for decades, were criminalized, imprisoned because of a, a faulty tech system. And the way I'm going with the story is, is that people have been fighting for acknowledgement of this for more than two decades under this government. Channel 4 make a, um, a dramatization about it. Suddenly the whole country knows about it. Suddenly everyone knows about it. Suddenly change is finally starting to happen. Mm. But for a lot of these people, it's too late. Their lives have been ruined. And the point of that is, is it's all about awareness. We can't change things unless we're aware of what's really going on. And we can't bring meaningful change if not enough people know about what's going on. And the government and all the different organizations who like to maintain the status quo, 
they are very happy that people remain ignorant and they're very happy that you're not watching the mainstream media. Mm. They're very happy that you're not reading The Guardian and that you're not reading The Independent and that you're getting all your news from social media because they want you to be confused, afraid and uh, feeling hopeless. Because when you feel afraid, confused, hopeless, you know, you stick with what you know. You're passive. You yeah. stick with what you know. You keep voting for the same parties. You keep eating the same food. You keep doing the same things. And you don't break outside of any comfort zone uh, to try something a bit different and take risks, you know. Um, so the answer to the question is, is break outside of your comfort zone. Have conversations with people that you disagree with. Mm. Don't block and unfollow people just because you have different political views to them have a, a diverse media diet, but don't watch the news every single day. Don't gorge on the news whenever you get a chance. Watch a bit of news in the morning or watch it once a week. Watch a bit of news once a week. Read a few of the papers or the, you know, the online stuff on a Sunday or something like that. Just catch up, set yourself a limit. One hour of news and when the, when the bell goes, no more, cut it off. Could be say the same about social media, but you know, yeah, we all know yeah, yeah. how hard it is to put down social media. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's worth uh, also I think pointing out that even though social media feels like intrinsically feels like you're just following your friends, right? Mm. You're following people mm. that you maybe have followed for a long time, so you feel like you know them. Yeah. So the danger is that you feel that you trust them, and mm. so when these, as you said, influencers. Yeah share their opinions, which are just opinions in the end of the day, they are not news. You kind of just trust them. And that's yeah. where those opinions are formed of your own. And mm. then it just perpetuates that cycle of yeah. incorrect well, that's, information. Yeah. So I think it's important to distinguish the difference between disinformation and misinformation. Mm. So imagine, I like my metaphors, imagine an earthquake at the epicenter where the earthquake is initiated. That is the disinformation. It is media that has been purposefully created to mislead people. Someone has consciously engineered a piece of media, a TV ad, a billboard, a social media video, an article with the, with the sole purpose to mislead. Once it goes out into the world and then it is then spread like the epicenter of the earthquake, mm. the, the aftershock as it spreads, that becomes misinformation because people inadvertently, accidentally share that thinking it's true. Sharing it with the mum, with the dad, the grandma, with a friend. Yeah. And so the ripples from the disinformation outwards, from person to person, become misinformation because there are the bonds of trust between those people. They assume, oh, that person's fact-checked it. Of course they've fact-checked it. They're you a great know, person. I, tr I, I trust yes. them. We've all been guilty of sharing things that are untrue because we've been too lazy or too busy to check whether it's true or not. And this is where like media literacy is vital. People need to learn how to fact-check things. And that is simple. Who has time for that? We need to learn at school. We should be learning at university and college and it should be done, it should be everywhere. It should be teach people how to fact check and why it matters. The World Economic Forum has put misinformation and disinformation Isn't at that? the top of global threats to humanity above extreme weather. And the reason it's the most threatening thing to us today is because what it does is it creates inaction. People don't make the necessary changes needed to change our society so that we can protect our place on earth. And if we don't get a handle of it, and the tech companies are at the center of all of this, Meta, YouTube, uh, Google, etc., they have the power to slow down and stop the spread of misinformation, but they choose not to because they say, oh, you know, freedom of speech and all of that. <laughs> but this media, a lot of this media is what keeps people hooked to social media. 
all this divisive media, media that creates differences and arguments and fighting and, uh, you know, heated conversation. It's polarizing. If you watch The Social Dilemma on, on Netflix, it really illustrates this perfectly, how a piece of media goes out. And in the comments section, you see all these people fighting each other. And the, and the most divisive comments float to the top that have like thousands of likes. They could be homophobic, they could be transphobic, they could be racist, they could be sexist. Uh, and they get all the angry emotions out. And what is that doing? It's driving engagement. It's keeping people hooked. It's keeping people coming back. And it's allowing Mark Zuckerberg to go laughing all the way to the bank. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. You know, these are all kind of huge threats to our species. And we are sleepwalking into them. And I think, you know, the key really is, is just awareness, is to learning more about how these tools have power over us. Because, you know, social media is not intrinsically bad. It's how we're using it that's bad. You know, TV isn't intrinsically bad. Mm -hmm. Medicine isn't bad, but it's the dose that makes the poison, as they say, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Moderation is key with everything. Yeah. So we, we steered away slightly. <laughs> <laughs> you were telling me about the cellular agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to food um, and solutions, there is a technology known as cellular agriculture. Precision fermentation is part of the conversation too. I'll get to that. But cellular agriculture and the media likes to call it lab grown meat, which is completely incorrect. It's not grown in a lab. Uh, and it's called lab grown meat by the media because it sensationalizes it. It evokes images of like doctors with stethoscopes and people in lab, lab coats. But cellular agriculture um, has been around for decades and it has been used to grow all kinds of things that we use in our food. The rennet that is made with cheese, that's put into cheese, you know, rennet is the enzyme that was taken from the calves of baby cows. Mm. That is now grown using cellular agriculture and precision fermentation. It's made by humans in factories. So the idea that we can take cells from a living organism and then encourage those cells to grow into tissue has been around for a very long time. We now are working towards building this stuff to scale where you can take cells from a chicken feather and you can grow chicken flesh and you can have chicken breast. It's not like meat, it's not fake meat, it is meat. It's meat, but it's grown by human beings. In a sterile environment, with a fraction of the environmental cost, it doesn't contain hormones and PCBs and heavy metals and all the pollutants that come from the environment. So just like we can take um, a leaf from a tree and propagate the cells and grow plant matter, Animal cells behave exactly the same way as plant cells. We can put them into a, into a reactor. We can add various different liquids and stuff which trigger the cells to grow. And we can create flesh which we can then form into steaks and into different whatever we want, whether it's salmon or chicken or pork or any, any meat. Well, and, the upside, I see the upsides. Yeah, yeah. There's a million upsides. What about the downside or do, are we... Which downside it, specifically? Exactly. Is there a downside to consuming that sort of meat? Is it nutritionally... As, exactly the same. Exactly the same. Yeah, exactly the same. So it won't have all the environmental pollutants in it. It won't have the hormones and the 
um, PCBs and the heavy metals and parasites and viruses and bacterium and all of that, which can come with meat, which most people are consuming. Through the process of growing it, actually. Yeah, yeah, in a factory farm, which is how it's produced now. But cell-based meat is grown in a clean environment. It's much, it's much, looks, if you go to a facility that grows cell-based meat, it looks like a brewery. Big metal chambers, like they're called reactors. Um, and theoretically, we can take cells from one animal and we can make tons of beef take cells from one salmon and make tons of salmon meat. And there's no catch. There isn't a catch because we are using, we're harnessing the power of nature, mm. cellular division, to produce meat that we have been eating for thousands of years. The catches are complex. So, you know, if we talk about catches, it's economic. This is not easy to do. It requires advanced technology. Well, it, it requires advanced knowledge to, to, to um, employ what is quite somewhat simple technology and simple principles, but it requires experienced scientists and people who know how to deliver these technologies. There's obviously um, trust, trust with the consumer. When you're selling a product that is cell-based meat, so like a cell-based burger or a chicken, how do you get the consumer to trust it? Because they go, oh, where's, what kind of meat is this? And they say, well, it's a cell-based meat. And they're like, what does that mean? And I'll go, oh, it's grown by people. This doesn't come off an animal. Oh, what does that mean? It immediately triggers fear because people don't know it. They're not familiar with it. They're not familiar with it. But on a biological level, on a cellular level, on an anatomical, on an, on a, uh, an atomic level, it is meat. Question. Mm. Can I do that with... Can with human meat? Absolutely. We're animals. You could take the cell of a human and grow So I can meat. grow another heart. Yeah. And another yeah, liver. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. That's more complex. So that's an organ. Ah. So growing flesh is, is somewhat simple to do. Whereas growing, growing a complex organ, like a heart or a kidney or a lung, uh, is theoretically possible, but it's much more complicated because, you know, when you were born and when you grow in the womb, it's exactly like a 3D printer. Well, not exactly. It's similar to a 3D printer. Somehow, through the magic of biology, you print a human being. <laughs> and out comes a human being printed by the womb. The womb is like a 3D printer. Mm. Well, DNA is like a 3D printer. DNA contains all the information on how to create a human embryo and a, and a, and a full human body. But we can take the cells of like, you know, the flesh of a chicken or cells even from a... So is it more that you take, for example, a cell from a muscular tissue yes. and you replicate that? Yes. And if I take a cell from a heart, you know, organ tissue, that will be different than the muscular one. And so yeah. what we're doing with animals is we're taking their muscular Correct. cell tissue and we're yeah. replicating that. But we could technically do that with the, you know, I don't know, chicken's liver. Yes, you could. Well, it's it, this because obviously an organism is made up of lots of different specialized cells, and the specialized cells form organs through the process of growth, right? And the DNA guides that process of how a heart or an eye or a hair strand or a finger or a nail or whatever is formed. I don't know whether we are anywhere near being able to do that like I've, I've seen people scientists growing ears on the backs of mice and stuff and that's been done a few decades ago so it's theoretically possible to grow anything um, with the right technology but the idea of growing muscular tissue and, and making steaks and burgers and chicken and all this type of stuff animal protein is now possible how far are we well we were making huge progress but countries across europe are moving to ban cell-based meat it's being banned in italy based on corporate interest uh, financial the, the meat industry sees it as a huge threat 
uh, and they are pushing a narrative of it's not natural. It's you know it's uh, surely there must. So my exact question is: What exactly is their serious or scientific argument? To- they don't have any. It's it's purely on uh, the commercial interests of the meat industry and farmers. So the farmers who are in their thousands in Italy will say these technologies will put us out of jobs. They are going to remove our, our livelihoods, which is true. But what should be happening is governments should be giving grants and money to these farmers to give them the tools and the technologies and the facilities to grow their own meat. Mm. If you could see farmers across the world or even in cities like London where we have facilities where meat is grown by human beings in clean, safe, sanitized environments and the meat is the meat that everyone loves. And so we produce huge amounts of meat for our city. People want to continue eating. I don't see a future where humans stop eating meat completely. There are far too many of us who are so bound into this relationship of consuming animal flesh. So if people like animal flesh, let's give them the flesh that they like. Yeah. But let's produce it in such a way that it doesn't destroy our planet. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like the perfect solution. Yeah. But there's definitely there's definitely going to be that um I guess the the initial at least pushback from the public that is skeptical it's happening. of this unknown. We've yeah. got economic, cultural an ethical pushback from society because it's scary, it's unknown, it's it's strange. Uh, and this is where media and advertising comes in. There is not enough work being done to popularize popularize it, but to to demystify it. Mm. To um, yeah, there's a, there's so much mystery involved in it. People are terrified of new technologies. I mean, look at how people are terrified. I mean, how, I wonder how many of your audience have heard that microwaves destroy the nutrients of food and I've that, heard that. that it's bad for you to use a microwave and that it's radioactive. I've definitely heard that right? a million times, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's completely untrue. Any type of heat destroys nutrients in fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And actually, lots of studies will show that cooking vegetables with a bit of water in a bowl in a microwave actually locks in more nutrients mm-hmm. than cooking it on a hob in water with a convection oven underneath. Um, again, like a microwave the energy in a microwave are microwaves. It's microwave light. It's an invisible form of light that is concentrated energy that bounces around inside that little chamber and accelerates and excites the water molecules in food. They give off photons, which creates heat. So it cooks from the inside out. And that's often why people will ruin their food in the microwave because it cooks from the middle out Mm. rather than the outside in, which is what a traditional oven does. But the idea of a microwave containing radiation comes from a lack of understanding of basic physics. The radiation in a microwave is not the same radiation in a nuclear bomb. A nuclear bomb is ionizing radiation. It can destroy your DNA. It can cause cancer. It can cause you to become deeply unwell. That's exactly what I had heard, that the microwave uh, was altering the molecules of the food. It doesn't. Incorrect. It's incorrect. Accelerates because of the wavelength of the microwave energy. The, the molecules of water oscillate and they give off photons that create heat in the food. That's why it's such a fascinating and an amazing technology. But it's often misused because people don't know how to cook in microwaves. Mm. Uh, it's a high energy, quick process, great for warming soups, cooking vegetables and a few other things. But it's not good for cooking food in a nice, slow way. You know, it's better to, I prefer to cook food on the hob, but I will be very happy to cook something in a microwave. But there is this idea that it changes the DNA, that it damages nutrients. It's like, well, all heat damages nutrients in food, whether it's on a hob, in a microwave, over a fire, Mm. doesn't matter. 
Um, so again, science awareness and going back to the conversation about who to trust, it comes down to communication. When we are learning new things, we often trust people that are all, you know, with this knowledge. And who are we doing that with right now? Influencers, people on social media, who are they going, don't use microwaves because they're radiation, they're gonna give you cancer. No, a nuclear bomb will give you radiation <laughs> cancer, but a microwave will burn your food and it will destroy all the nutrients if you overcook it, you know? Just like a normal hub would, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like a normal hub would. So education true. awareness comes, it all comes down to education and awareness. But again, trust is a big part of this. Why should you trust me? Why should you trust what I'm saying? Well, mm. go and read about it. Go and research it. Back go to and, fact checking. Yeah. I remember you said that. How can one today know which facts are in fact reliable or where do you actually fact check things? So which original source? First of all, where do you get access to original sources? What is deemed a valid original source? And how do you know that the whatever governing body or authority that has deemed that to be mm. a reliable source is in fact reliable itself? It's becoming increasingly more difficult to know who to trust, especially with AI. I mean, not even got into AI. We are now able to fake images and create media at the flick of a switch. I think it's important to trust entities that are seen as credible by the scientific community. So when we talk about nutrition, for example, the British Dietetic Association and the American Dietetic Association, these are the bodies that have, have existed for many generations to look at the nutritional science of the way we eat. And they are and have always been seen as respected entities they both say a well-planned vegan diet is suitable for people of all ages. And so when I say to people, where people ask me, how do I know whether it's true or not? I'm like, well, they are seen as a credible source. But then you might say, well, why are they a credible source? What makes them a credible source? And I would say it's many things. It's their history. It's the people that are involved. It's, it's the scientists and the, 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 the training and the um, education that the people who run those entities go through many, many you know, decades of study and scientific experiment and stuff like that. It's, it's a sense of, a lot of these people take responsibility for the knowledge and information that they are sharing and they take it very seriously. And to me, a true scientist, people who are scientific, they never say that there is an absolute truth because when it comes to nutrition and science and all these science, uh, science modalities, science is always evolving. Science is just trying to understand the nature of the universe, trying to understand the nature of all things, asking how, not why. Mm. Spirituality is all about why. Science is about how. How do we know that they are not bribable or corruptible? They, or they are. Don't have interest? Of course they are. Of course, industry has its fingers in many pies. Mm. It's really hard. I don't think there's a simple answer to this. I think if your area is nutrition and you want to get to the truth, that's not going to happen in five minutes. If you really are passionate about nutrition, nutritional science, then it's important to get involved and bury, and it could be anything, business, nutrition, politics, whatever, dive in and immerse yourself in the society and the community. Listen to all the experts do your own study, do your own analysis. You know, if you're going to go to become university to become a professor or a doctor or a dietitian or whatever, you can then get into that world and then start to pick it apart and challenge. Because that's why scientists, science is so fascinating because and interesting because it's about constantly challenging what we know today. Mm. Scientists will never say, that's an axiom. This is an immovable truth. 
especially with nutrition, we're always evolving our awareness. So a good scientist will say, okay, you've got an opinion, you've got a hypothesis, you've got an idea about how you think I am wrong, prove it. Mm. Do a study, do an analysis, you know, do whatever. There are, there is a process through which scientific methods move through and there's different qualities of scientific um, evidence. It's obviously, you know, when it comes to evidence and who we should trust, it does move through this process and it's been, I guess, a tried and tested model for hundreds of years. So to this point, what I'm thinking, what's popping in my mind is this route of gathering data and facts is a, is a long and sometimes, oftentimes, an expensive one. Mm, so yeah. thinking about nutrition and thinking about mm, health, on many occasions, there might have been people or groups of people that have tried and tested in practicality mm. some theories and some methods and some diets and some medicines, and they practically work, right? Mm. But they might not have or might never have the means to mm -hmm. get them approved in the conventional way. Yeah. So this is what I'm thinking when, when we're talking about fact-checking and you're talking about personal experience. I'm, I'm talking not really just kind of me trying something on myself because, mm. you know, my, my body is very yeah, unique, such sure. as everyone else's. But mm. I'm talking about, you know, a larger scale of like mm -hmm. 10 times, 100 times that, for yeah. example, you know, like a large group of people like testing the same theory, okay. the same diet. Yeah, yeah, doing a study. Exactly. Yeah. Doing a study, but but maybe not to the academic level where they don't have access uh, or the means to, to, to prove it. And mm. I'm just thinking, does that constitute, like, should you be believing that? Because surely at some point, if that does not align with maybe the common interests, especially of the economic yeah. powerhouses, they're mm. going to debunk them and discredit them sure. and say that they're completely cookies crazy. Well, yeah, it all comes down to the quality of the evidence, doesn't it? Mm. And so, you know, if you did a study in your local neighborhood with like 20 people, that's the, the evidence that you the evidence that you acquire from that study is still evidence. But the quality of that evidence is a lot lower. Mm. So you, you wouldn't be able to take that evidence and then your evidence from your study and present it and suggest that it's a truth because it hasn't been through the rigors of scientific analysis. Mm. You know, peer-reviewed studies are called peer-reviewed because you do a study, you have a hypothesis, you try to prove something, and then your peers try to replicate it. And if they replicate it and they do the study and they approve it, then the review, the peer review, suggests a higher quality of evidence, meaning that you have a theory, you've tested it on a group of people, someone else has done the same thing, they get the same result. So the quality of the evidence goes up. Mm -hmm. So anecdotal evidence, which is individuals, you know, people refer to my granny, she ate meat for, you know, 100 years and she was happy and healthy. She survived, you know, why should we eat meat? That's absolutely valid. That's a anecdotal piece of evidence. But when you have 100,000 people doing a study that's then peer reviewed across an entire continent that gets the um, evidence of X and then other peers get the same evidence, the quality of that evidence is so much higher. And that's why it's important to, if you are interested in science and nutrition, it's important to learn how to read studies, to understand the hierarchy of evidence, to understand the different qualities of evidence. Mm. So when you ask a person, what's the evidence? You can understand when they say, oh, well, you know, I tested on my five friends, it must be true. Well, that's not- That was true for your five friends. That was true for your five friends, correct. But to get 
it into a, a scientific journal, for example, and then accept it into wider society requires a lot more scientific rigor. Yeah. So it's easy for people to go around and say, you know, oh, we shouldn't eat vegetables because they're toxic. Paul Saladino, he's f famous on Instagram. He's a, I love that he has the word salad in his surname. He's a carnivore doctor. Mm. Uh, I find it funny. Um, but he very juvenile, but he he believes that we should, he espouses that you know vegetables are toxic, that they contain anti nutrients, that we should all be eating mostly meat. Yeah, you know? and there's the Peterson's daughter, right, that eats only Jordan meat. Jordan Peterson, yeah, yeah, yeah. But these are not dietitians. These are yeah. not people who have been through rigorous nutritional training. These are influencers. Yeah. These are people, you know, like Jordan Peterson and uh, a few people like that. These are philosophers and writers and people at the bottom of the evidence hierarchy mm. making anecdotal claims and we can't discount their claims if someone says i ate an all-meat diet and i felt amazing good for them but when you dig a little deeper into the evidence the reality is is that they are feeling better because of what they're not eating mm. rather than what they are eating I understand so yeah it's complicated uh, and it requires patience and time and study and awareness and my message is always like if you're going to go out on social media and espouse opinions and views on nutrition politics science whatever you better understand it's important that you understand what you are talking about because if you don't you could be spreading misinformation mm. otherwise keep your mouth shut no joking <laughs> <laughs> the, po the point of the episode is do research. Do research, but also, like, you know, if you're out on social media giving your opinions and views, I think it's back important them. to say... Yeah, be able to back yeah, them. Yeah, or say, I'm not an expert. These are my opinions and views. Do your, fact, do your own fact-checking if you believe this, and I do. Actually, yeah, that would, that would make all the things much easier if people would just have this little disclaimer yeah. of, I think, or in my opinion, da -da 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 -da. it makes a big difference between doing that or confidently sharing your thoughts as if right. they were facts. So do you know about the Dunning-Kruger effect? Heard of it. So the two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, who have given the name to this psychological phenomenon that humans are very guilty of, we all are. And what it essentially is, is the less you know, the more you think you know. Mm. Where people often, when you can take ego and a small amount of awareness of a, of a subject you feel passionate about, you'll start going out and talking about it with absolute confidence. People start to believe you they give you credit, you feel more confident, you talk more, you spread more of this information you believe to be true, but you haven't spent any time studying it or learning about it. You've read some headlines, you've read a couple of articles, you've watched a couple of YouTube videos, and you're talking like you're an expert. The opposite side of the Dunning-Kruger effect is the imposter syndrome, where mm. scientists and doctors and experts who've been studying these things for decades, who really know their shit, they don't feel confident, and they don't want to talk about it because they don't feel experience enough yet they, they how are much there is out there yeah. but they they are the people who know what they're talking about and they are not the ones out there speaking the ones out there spreading information that they believe to be true are the ones that exhibit the dunning-kruger effect who often are the ones who feel that they are super confident and they get feedback from social media that says right. wow you're amazing you're so knowledgeable about nutrition i see it all the time on instagram you see these food influencers talking about things like you know 
uh, porridge, for example, there was, there was a, this nutritionist saying, we shouldn't be having porridge in the morning because, you know, it's bad for our blood sugar and it's bad for this. It's all carbs and it's all sugar. I've heard that. Which is absolute BS, you know. Mm. Oats is packed with fiber. It's packed with beta-glucans, which is great for lowering cholesterol. Yes, of course, oats contain a carbohydrate com component, but there are many other nutrients within oats which are great for us. So... <laughs> I'm so glad that you actually mentioned oats. This is what I wanted to talk about a little, which is the, uh, the plant-based milks. Mm. So I discovered, I think I intuitively steered away from dairy, uh, you know, for about two decades to the point where now I know I'm dairy uh, intolerant. Mm -hmm. And when I moved to UK, which was about six years ago, there was this whole plant-based um, milk coming, the mm -hmm. trend coming yeah. in. And so I tried the oat milk. I was like, mm, got used to it. Great. Love it amazing however about i'll say a year and a half two years ago i just started noticing that i i was having these very like sharp pains in my kind of chest and, mm. and my stomach after i was having nothing else than mm. just like my oat lattes yeah and um then i started you know reading up on it a little bit and what i read was that this is quite a common theme seems like for people because apparently but because of this increase of demand and the oat and the way that they produce this oat milk and farm the oats, that they uh, oftentimes contain uh, glyphosate, which is this, uh, you know, pesticide right. that is very bad for you. And then, then that goes on to tear your gut lining. And then I was like, wow, well, that makes sense. Then. And so I said, well, right. I'm going to initiate what I said to you. I'm not an expert in this subject, so I won't comment on glyphosate because it's actually a very complicated subject, pesticides, herbicides. What I do know is that, yes, these substances are sprayed onto our crops in huge quantities. And there are, I have had many conversations with doctors and gastroenterologists who are concerned about the effects this substance is having on our gut microbiome because glyphosate is an antimicrobial substance. What's in our gut? Microbes. We are carrying around two and a half kilograms of microbes in our stomach every, wherever we go. These creatures, creatures, these entities, these organisms, it's a better word, help us thrive. They obviously can be, they can also damage us in many ways if the bad bacteria over, become overgrown. But yes, there are conversations around glyphosate and the effects it's, have, it's, it's having on us as people, especially our gut microbiome. It's something I, there, I, I could do with learning a lot more about and, and, and speaking to a few more experts on. And this is where the conversation goes. I am interested in this as you are. So who should I speak to? And it's talking to people who are studying it, who are doing, you know, mass studies across continents or across countries where thousands of people are involved in analyzing the effects of this substance on our biology. Um, the simple answer to that would be, you know, if you are going to have oats, buy organic. Organic yeah. oats won't have glyphosate in it. Um, Personally, I mean, and everything I've read about it is horrifying. Uh, all the cases in America about, you know, claims of the effects it's having on farm workers, because obviously people are exposed to glyphosate in high quantities when they work with, with these, on, these, on these farms, and people are dying from it. Um, and it, there are huge court cases going through suing companies that are continuing to use this substance. It's again like, why are we using it? If it's so damaging, you can buy it in the supermarkets. You can buy it in, 
You use it to you can use it to kill. It's well, a, that's another a, product. It's a herbicide, it's a cell, right? It's I believe it's a herbicide. I don't. I need to fact check that, but I believe it's a herbicide. So when it's sprayed onto the wheat or the oats, it kills the weeds. Yeah. And then the oats and the wheat are resistant to the glyphosate. It sticks to the plants, and then obviously when it's then ground up, it ends up in our food. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are deeply concerned about it, concerned about its effects on us. Um, but again, this is a byproduct of an industrialized food system that is trying to feed billions of people. Mm. And so these substances were created to speed up the process, to make more food more quickly at the expense of the environment. Because obviously it's not just our gut microbiome that's suffering. Glyphosate and all these herbicides, fungicides, pesticides are damaging insect populations. That's another conversation. Everything they come in touch with. Everything. 90% of insect populations in the UK are gone because of antimicrobial sprays and pesticides and things. So I was I always found it amazing and wonderful that there are no mosquitoes in London because I lived in... Obviously, I'm There's from no Latvia. anything. There's no There's insects. not anything, yeah. yeah. All the insects are gone because of... That's why. Because of farming, because of industrialized farming, yeah. So, you know, organic farming doesn't mean no pesticides, by the way. I think people think that organic farms are no pesticides. They are pesticides and fungicides and herbicides, but they are biodegradable and they're designed to be, I think, water-soluble and things like that. So they... They disappear, they kind of like, they um, denature once. And they don't end up in your food. Yeah, they don't. Well, they do, but they probably become inert. So, you know, once you consume, they don't really do anything. Okay. Uh, so there are, there are ways in which we can farm and, you know, not cause damage to the environment. The, the big question is scaling it. Can we feed enough people and not use these methods? Because mm. industrialized animal agriculture, industrialized aquaculture, which we've not even talked about yet, these things are all a byproduct of a human food system that is demanding food 24-7 yeah. in huge quantities. Excess. Which sounds like we need to be tackling some of the big gaps in that cycle, which is the waste yeah, starting yeah, from so. the waste and also the, the way we produce and how much we produce. Because everyone listening is probably drinking some sort of milk. Yeah. So I, I will be looking it up and I will be researching which is the best milk alternative so so far I've, I've i've rested on the idea that the best thing is to have none no milk of any sort yeah we don't need um oat milk or dairy milk or anything in our food yeah. it's it's it isn't necessary um but i would say if you're concerned about glyphosate then look for an organic product if you can afford it or or switch to a different um type of milk like a brown rice milk but then you look at rice and people are concerned about arsenic you know um, and, and soy milk is too much estrogen. Uh, oh, well, that's an, an interesting one. That's definitely misinformation. Yeah. So soybeans, and this is one I love to debunk, soybeans contain phytoestrogens, which yeah. is a plant, uh, it's a molecule that has, is actually protective against many forms of cancer. Um, this whole idea that soybeans contain estrogen came from like a study from the 80s, I think, that ended up spreading and ended up spreading this misinformation that drinking soy milk and eating soybeans increases estrogen in the body. Well, if you know, if you want to know where to get estrogen, drink cow's milk, because what is cow's milk? It's breast milk of a mammal. Mm. So, you know, people are getting worried about having too much estrogen from drinking soy milk whilst chugging down glasses of dairy from a cow, yeah. which is a female animal, a female mammal, you know, 
it's complete misinformation that soy contains high levels of estrogen and it can cause gynecomastia, you know, man boobs in men. Asian. I read up on that and I also read that most yeah. of this is absolute disinformation. Yeah. What I understood yeah. of, of all the articles is that is relevant only to women. And for menopausal women, it's actually good because it increases mm. the estrogen that is already depleted. Yeah. Versus the premenopausal women, it can cause uh, the excess excess amounts of, of estrogen. Uh, but it doesn't increase, so drinking soy milk will not increase your estrogen, whether you're a man or a woman, mm. because the substances that are in soybeans are phytoestrogens. Yeah. They're not mammal estrogens. Yeah. So it doesn't affect your estrogen levels. It can have a slight change to your, your hormone levels if you are consuming huge quantities, and I mean like unnatural quantities, and they could also be down to the levels of protein you're consuming as well, not necessarily the phytoestrogens. But, you know, I always say to people when they throw this one at me, look at Asia. People in Asia have been consuming soy products, tofu, tempeh, soy milk for thousands of years. Mm. The amount of cancer, heart disease, and lifestyle diseases that happen in the West are a fraction in Asia. If soy contained estrogens that caused health problems there would be widespread health issues associated with elevated estrogen across asia and there just isn't Mm. so it's the opposite asian people are now starting to consume dairy and all the western diseases heart disease type 2 diabetes are starting to appear in asia so this idea that soybeans and soy milk are High, have high levels of estrogen and they're going to affect your estrogen levels complete BS. Mm. But, it's, <laughs> but it's being pushed by the dairy industry subtly through various different entities and it's encouraged this rhetoric, this idea. It's actually protective. There's many studies that show in upping your, especially for women, against protective against breast cancer, mm. upping your soy based um, nutrients and it's also packed with protein it's it's pretty much a complete protein you know and it's, it's so versatile you, you can have tofu you can have tempeh you can have natto you can obviously make milks with it you know i think that the chinese have like 15 different types of tofu that they make with with uh, soybeans so and it's a bean you know it's a bean it grows in the ground it's a it's a very natural <laughs> can't use that it's a very um safe food source it's obviously unaf- it's also affected by industrialized agriculture, so pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. And then also what's often thrown at us as vegans, it's like, well, you know, vegans are destroying the rainforest with your soy, but only 6% of global soy consumption goes to human beings. The rest is biofuels and animal agriculture. Mm. So if you care about the rainforest, stop eating meat because most of the, the, the trees, Soy goes to them, most yeah. of the deforestation that is being done in South America is being done to cut down forest, to plant soybeans, to feed cows, not feed human beings. And I want to lightly touch upon also the nutrient density and the nutrient availability in the food yeah. in general, plant-based, yeah. not plant-based, that, mm. that we're consuming. I've, I've heard that there's this almost epidemic of the soil Completion. Yeah, uh, depletion. So mm. how do people know that what they're eating is actually giving them the nutrients they're supposed to receive? It's a huge problem um, for anyone of any diet. The food that we're eating today is a fraction of the nutrient density that it used to be because the soils are so depleted. Is it um, everywhere? Is happening everywhere. Mm. So because of industrialized agriculture, it is destroying the soils 
and a lot of the runoff, you know, when it rains and there's, there's um, intense um, storms, that topsoil is ending up in the oceans. And so all those nutrients, all those minerals that should be going into our fruits and vegetables are ending up in the oceans. And of course, we're using artificial fertilizers. I think when it comes to like being aware of your health, if you can afford to have your blood tested or if you're very lucky to live in the UK, you can go to your doctor and you can have a blood test. And they can check for your iron, your your ferritin levels, your uh, vitamin D levels, your DHA levels, all these kinds of things. You can have that done for free in the UK. You just have to ask your doctor. It is possible to check if you're getting enough nutrients. Now, when it comes to are the fruits and vegetables we're eating, do they have enough nutrients in them? You'd need that special machine I talked about at the beginning where you put it through and it tells you Mm. what nutrients are in that fruit or vegetable. If you can buy from farmers markets, if you have access to them, you might be be getting fruits and vegetables that have been allowed to ripen and then they're sold. Whereas fruits and vegetables that we buy in the supermarkets in the UK often are completely tasteless and they're tasteless because they're picked when they're green. Mm -hmm. Take apples, for example, from Australia or New Zealand. They're picked when they're green. They end up in a big container. They suck out the air. They pump it full of some kind of gas and they can sit there for six months, maybe more. Then they're shipped to the UK, put on the shelf, polished with shellac, which is like ground up beetles. They make them shiny and then they're sold to you. Obviously also covered in five different types of pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. That's why the strawberries taste like water. It's a pretty stark (laughs) view of our food system. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, you know, obviously when I have these conversations, it can be a bit depressing. It can be really like soul destroying to realize just how bad things are. But I would like to say that there is always hope. You know, there are so many people around the world who are pushing for change. There are allotments all over our cities where you can apply to go and learn to grow your own food. Some waiting lists are ridiculous, or like five-year waiting lists for an allotment. But if you're interested in growing your own food, do it. You could do it at home. You could grow sprouts, actually, Mm. which are loaded with nutrients. You could grow broccoli sprouts, um, lentil sprouts, you know, and it's super easy. You can grow sprouts in like three or four days. Those types of vegetables or plants are packed with nutrients and minerals. So if you're concerned about your nutrient density and you don't want to take a multivitamin, you know, perhaps you could start growing sprouts in your kitchen, which you could do super easy. And Love that. Good reminder. My mom <laughs> used to do that. Now uh, I'm on to it as well. Yeah. So... I want to touch upon uh, the your media side of experience. So obviously, you co-founded uh, Plant Based News, mm-hmm. and it has it's a channel of I think one point two million followers on Instagram. Three point four million in total across the whole platform. Okay. Wow, just gone up recently. <laughs> Amazing. So how? What would you say is the secret to the success, or how does one grow a channel mm. that's so? so big and so loved and so followed Uh, a lot of patience a lot of consistency and a clear plan and planning in in advance is key Um, and and really sticking to a core topic Um, obviously pbn covers a broad range of subjects but it is within the niche of plant-based living Um, and so that's really really important pick a subject that you really care about and become an expert in it and that takes time and it takes many many years of um, you know, study and reading and conversations. Um, but I think, you know, you can't do everything yourself. I, we have achieved this success because of an amazing team mm. of a, a social media team, an editorial team. Um, and in the beginning, it was all just myself and Klaus, my business partner, Klaus Mitchell. 
we were doing everything. We were the tech team and the social media team and the video editing team and the HR team. Uh, and it was a challenge. You know, in the beginning, it was really, really hard. And we, we kind of burnt ourselves out several times mm. uh, in the pursuit of growth. But social media platforms are really, really difficult. They are, it's like a treadmill many, most of the time, constantly needing to be fed. You know, they're like hungry babies. Mm always wanting more and more and more and if you don't post but I think that's a bit of an illusion because I have friends and I know people who post pieces of content once a week and some once a month and they're absolutely killing it so it's not about how much you post or the volume it's about the quality of what you're doing and are you creating media that people genuinely want to share and read don't get into the habit of just creating content for the sake of it oh i've got to create five pieces of content today and then just jumping on chat gpt and spitting out just any old crap mm. you know <laughs> you have to pour your heart and soul into what you're doing and people will see that and if you're not doing that then the um if you're not authentic in your communications and in your passion for what you're doing people will see right through that if it's just because you want to be famous you want to make money you will people will really see through that eventually and you'll, you won't get to where you want to go. So PBN is a success because of an amazing team, consistency and focus, and just also an attention to detail as well. Like you'll find me, I'm not so much now because I'm stepping back from PBN to work on a new nonprofit this year, but I was always in the DMs, even eight years into the business, you'll find me in the DMs, you'll see me in the comments. I'm there engaging with people, talking to people, advocating for the lifestyle, answering questions, you know, getting my hands dirty, not being afraid to get involved, you know, in whatever aspect, aspect the platform needed. So it requires a lot of commitment um, and energy and it's tough, but it's worth it because I love it because it's something I really believe in. So. Mm. Two points here. I love that you mentioned about the, um, you know, posting less but posting better. Yeah. So I think this quality over quantity lately has been exacerbated because at the dawn of the social media platforms, there was a vacuum almost of information on those platforms because they were new. So that's why also, you know, whoever was on there was gaining insane traction because yeah. there was nothing else. Yeah. So, you know, whatever you were posting, that was great. Whereas now there's exactly the extreme opposite where mm. there's so much that people are trying to win back their time and attention yep. so that's where that quality comes in people don't want more info yeah they want better info and it's also not about like high production values and fancy transitions mm. people want to see real as well they want to see authentic they want to see they want to see some of the low lights as well so that they can feel human being like be, feel like they're real human beings as well mm when we just have this curated view of people's lives through the lens of social media every day, all day, there is a real lack of uh, authenticity that I think is starting to affect people. People are tired of seeing these highly curated, you know, overly filtered lives in every single way. I think people who are really coming to the screen, coming to the camera with a bit of their their struggles with a bit of their imperfections. That is what people are I, feel, are, I feel like, are leaning into a lot more. They want to see behind the scenes. Who are you really? Mm. What are you struggling with? So that I can feel less imperfect by seeing that you're yeah. also imperfect and you're also struggling. People see my platform and our platform think, oh, it must be so glamorous and so amazing. And you get to travel all over the world and meet all these amazing people. And I do, but there has been a lot of blood, sweat and tears behind the scenes, which I've not really been able to show enough of 
because you know the media platform is about presenting a very specific view, which is education, awareness, you know, knowledge. No one wants to see me, then I, you know, losing my shit on social media because <laughs> something's gone wrong. You know, that breaks the illusion of this stable, yeah. strong, confident media platform. But on my personal page, you know, I've shared stories and conversation about my battles with chronic pain. Um, you know, concerns around my diet, around you know, I have issues with digesting. Um, gluten which could be linked potentially to some issue with glyphosate I don't know yet we, the science is unclear but I think sharing more of who we really are I think is key um, in our pursuit for um, growth I suppose yeah building more authentic connections with people very valid very valid thank you for that advice what is your uh, purpose what is my purpose mm, big question <laughs> five million pound question <clears throat> my purpose is to help people see that the impact that they have as individuals is far reaching and that we have more power in our choices than we realize and that our personal choices create a ripple in, in space and time for our entire society and that it's important to become more aware of that. That's what I, I feel my purpose is, is to help people see that each of us holds great power one of my favorite quotes from The Cloud Atlas, which is uh, this amazing book slash film, is from womb to tomb, we are bound to others past and present. And with each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. And it's, you know, it's the law of karma. So one of the reasons I believe uh, in the philosophies of the Buddha is because with every thought, with every um, word and with every action, we create a ripple of cause and effect in our society, uh, our families, our lives, whatever we're doing. And so being more mindful and conscious people, so we talk about being an ethical vegan, it's not just being a vegan in diet and in fashion choices, it's being someone who's ethically minded, who's thinking about their impact as, as a person, as an individual. And that's ultimately what I believe my purpose is, to try to help people understand that through their food choices, through their fashion choices, through everything that they're doing, they are creating this ripple of change, whether it could be positive or negative, but we get to choose. We can't always choose because of economic reasons or privilege or whatever. Sometimes we're forced into a specific choice. And I want to emphasize that sometimes people have to make non-vegan choices, take medication, for example, or medication is tested on animals. Mm. So by definition, medication is not vegan, but we have to take medication when we're unwell, Otherwise, it could jeopardize our health. So that is a non-vegan choice, but it might be at odds with your ethics, but you have to make that choice. Otherwise, you might die or you might become deeply un unwell. So that's my purpose is to, is to, to help people see the, the, their own power and the choices that they make every day. When did you understand that that's it for you? Probably when I, I started getting involved in using my skills to educate people about food maybe like 15 16 years ago mm. uh, when I, I worked for jamie oliver um, on jamieoliver.com i was lead uh, web designer there and got involved in all the different campaigns the food at schools campaigns and i started to see how you can use media and design and the things that i was doing to educate people about how to eat better and how to um, shift the culture around food and you know, working around Jamie Oliver and his team, 
that kind of set me on that path. And I suppose it was around then, you know, because he's so passionate about food, about people eating better. He's not vegan, but he is someone who believes that we should be eating more plants, we should be eating more vegetables, that we should be eating less processed food, um, that we should be, you know, having better relationships with our farmers and the land. Um, and yeah, he definitely inspired me along that path. Beautiful. Can I ask you, what have been some of the most impactful life lessons that you've gathered and learned for yourself over the years? Yeah, that's a tough one as well. The most impactful life lessons probably are, are recently where I had some challenges with, with staff who I thought I had good relationships with and turned out that I didn't. Um, it, it, I guess a big lesson is don't ever assume anything about other people. Don't assume anything about your relationships with people. Don't assume that things are just great and that everything's fine. Because it seems so to you. It seems on the outside, yeah. That whether they are personal relationships, whether it's your wife or husband or girlfriend or boyfriend or work colleague, sometimes people are struggling or suffering or they just don't like you, but, but you, you don't, you're completely unaware. Uh, and that can happen for a variety of reasons. So I think it's important to be mindful of your relationships with other people and don't take people for granted. That's ultimately like one of my biggest lessons recently is don't just assume everything is cool, that everyone's fine, that everyone is happy mm. um, because most people aren't very good at communicating how they feel and they'd rather sit on their feelings and hide them than confront you and say, I'm deeply unhappy or I don't like this or I don't like that. You know, that's a painful lesson to learn. Uh, and sometimes as a leader or as a, as a boss or someone who's in charge, we have to put measures in place that support or facilitate um, conversation around struggle or hardship. And then if people are unhappy, there needs to be a channel, a way in which people can communicate that. And they might not be able to do it to you as a, as a boss or as a leader because they might be intimidated or they might find it difficult to talk to their boss about things like that. So this is where things like HR and human resources and people management comes in into your organization. It's important to be able to have channels by which your team can have their rants or share their struggles with someone who can help them work through it. And if it's about you as a leader, then they, it can come through that channel to you and you can work on it together mm. rather than that person sort of suffering in silence. So... That's been a huge life lesson for me. It's always going to happen because I'm building a new nonprofit entity. I will have staff and a team. So from the beginning, I'm going to make sure that, you know, there are ways in which people can share and communicate their, their challenges because we're all human beings. Mm. You know, we're all trying to get by and, and survive. Definitely. <laughs> is there anything else that sticks out for you? Yeah, I guess one of the other major ones is self-care. Um, I have not looked after myself at all over the last like eight years. I've been so dedicated to what I have been doing that I've neglected my own personal health. Mm. Um, and that's something that I have to change because I'm not going to be able to achieve the things I want to do in the next five to 10 years if I'm unwell. Um, and that's just basic stuff, not getting enough sleep, not eating enough whole foods, you know, not working and doing things that reduce stress, meditation, yoga, swimming, cycling, running, spending time in nature, connecting with friends, spending time with family, you know, nurturing those things more have, have been, are a priority for me now because I realized that, you know, as a leader, as someone who's trying to build something new, I'm not going to be able to function like I did 10 years ago because, you know, I'm not getting any younger, <laughs> but 
I want to be able to be healthy as I move into my you know late 40s and early 50s mm-hmm. if I don't protect my personal health and well-being it will jeopardize my plans and my you know my future really so that's something I, I really um this health year is pr- wealth. yeah health is wealth <laughs> exactly and that, that is needs to be a priority for all of us really fascinating i feel like we we could really go on for forever but this is probably the longest episode (laughs) i've ever filmed and it has been rivetingly interesting the whole time so robbie thank you so so much my pleasure potentially a part two at some point yeah got lots of subjects i could talk for hours on (laughs) amazing thank you so much robbie oh my pleasure thank you hello friends if you enjoyed this episode please make sure to subscribe and share it with someone I would love to hear your feedback and suggestions as to what guests you would like to see in the show next. See you next week.